and this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. The latest peace talks in the Russia-Ukraine war may lead to an eventual ceasefire, but not before displacing millions and damaging the air, water, and land of what was known as the breadbasket for the world. In the U.S., commercial media have brought us lots of reporting with presidents and politicians, military experts, and war victims. But on this program, we start from the premise that there are always more people and perspectives than are seen in the commercial picture. And for this conversation, we've brought together some of those people. Our guests have been working for democracy, peace, and justice in Ukraine and Russia and around the world for years. Their work has gotten harder in recent weeks, as you'll hear, but it hasn't stopped, and the need for it is ever more urgent. What happens next will have long-lasting impacts on all of us. So, from Russia, Dmitry Makarov joins me. He's a human rights defender and the youngest member of the Moscow Helsinki Group, which is the oldest activist human rights organization in what's historically called the post-Soviet space. Joining us from Berlin, after having had to leave Ukraine, is Anastasia Liukhina of the Kiev School of Economics, where she directs the Horizontal Connections NGO, about which we'll hear in just a bit. And from Washington, D.C., where she heads up the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, we have Phyllis Bennis. She's also a fellow at the Transnational Institute and recently wrote a piece, The Best Way to Help Ukraine is Diplomacy, Not War. Welcome. I want to thank you all for joining us and start by going to you, Anastasia. Um, First off, can you tell us where you are now and how long you've been there? And then give us some sense of what kind of work you were engaged in before the Russian invasion. Yes, I am currently in Berlin, and uh, it uh, it took us quite a while to get my mother out of the country. Uh, she she stayed for two weeks in Kiev, and she's on palliative care. So um, when it was getting really hot and dangerous, we convinced her to leave the country, and uh, it took her. She was she doesn't drive, but she had my car, and it took her four days to move from Kiev to Warsaw, and we had to find five different drivers to get her there on the way. And basically, those were people that we didn't know. You know, like I just used Facebook to find drivers, and um, we also had two minors, two kids that were, whose parents we didn't know in the car, and we just transported them to Warsaw to save their lives. Um, and it was a very stressful trip for her. And um, I, myself, and my son, we ended up not being able to return to Ukraine from a vacation in Egypt. So we ended up being stuck in Egypt with uh, a pair of fins and summer clothes and uh, and, and uh, no, no evacuation uh, um, uh, yeah, backpack on us. Yeah. Uh, so we, we reunited in Warsaw and came to Berlin yesterday. And... Um, 
Yeah, it's a it's a very stressful time. I can feel that my mind and my cognitive ability have been really down and my memory because uh, I think as all Ukrainians, we are trying to juggle so many things like helping our friends and families in our cities because the city I am from, Chernihiv, is under siege for many weeks now. And uh, it's, a, it's a terrible humanitarian situation. Um, Kharkiv is under siege and uh, really heavily bombed. And I mean, everybody knows what's happening in Mariupol. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. And there are so many children and women and just uh, normal civilians that are being hurt. And uh, when you ask me about what I did in the peaceful times, <laughs> it's I almost forgot by now because uh, war has just uh, erased <laughs> everything that was happening before. Yeah, it's a, it's a very small non-governmental organization and we basically had two major lines of work. One is activism in alternative education and we have been helping kids and parents to find uh, different ways to uh, uh, escape oppression in the state, state system and also help teachers change the way they teach kids. And, uh, and the second direction of work is, was in healthcare. What about you, Dimitri? Who's on your mind? Rightfully, the attention has been on the main victims of this war, which is the Ukrainian people. And the solidarity that they are experiencing, I mean, is amazing and gives me hopes. For Russians, it has not been that easy uh, because they are blamed, and in part, rightfully so, for the aggression. And among my friends, uh, which oppose the war, about a third had to leave the country also scrambling for neighboring places like Armenia, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and so on, Turkey. Uh, about a third has decided to stay, myself included, to continue to coordinate and connect various anti-war initiatives that are springing up uh, locally, nationally, and inter international connections. And about a third are still numbstruck, uh, still in denial about what's going on. Can you talk a bit about your work before? Because sometimes in our media, we get given a picture only of the countries at war and not of what was there before. My work has been focused on giving a voice to the civil society from the so-called post-Soviet space, which is a name that I don't like, but we don't have a better name still. Russia is extremely influential. And you can't really build human rights, democracy in one given country without paying attention to transnational problems of corruption, of environmental uh, issues, of human rights. It's not just the point of concern for experts and leading leaders and organized NGOs. It's also a point of citizen mobilization, that citizens keep on asking questions. What is it that's going on behind closed doors? What are, what are the acts that are committed in our name? We still need citizen mobilization. We still need transnational connections. We need to be much better at something that we tried to do before. And we have to do it much faster because this crisis has underlined that the old world and the old ways of dealing with the current problems are not enough. In, in that sense, we have all failed to prevent it, but there is hope in us realizing that failure, looking at the roots of it, and building on the great things that are happening despite all the horror that's going on. Phyllis, coming to you, I mean, 
failed. I, I, I hate to lay that at your particular door. Um, but when it comes to new internationalism, I, I, I would love your take on what's happened here inside the U.S. I, I look at a very divided um, country here in the U.S. Uh, and a divided so-called left um, over this question of who's to blame for what happened with the invasion, Russia or NATO. Um, also over the disparate and distinct treatment of white Ukrainian refugees compared to migrants of color in any number of other situations and Muslims. And of course, you know, we see a continuing struggle in this country around military and carceral policing, punishing responses to just about everything. Um, and I'm not sure that that's connecting to the ongoing work of demilitarization and peace that you work with. Thanks, Laura. You know, it is a huge challenge, and I don't think we've met it very well. It's beginning, but we have such a long way to go to not just learn, but to apply the lessons of earlier wars. The goal of creating a global movement against war, against militarism, both in the immediate, a global mobilization now against war in Ukraine, against Russia's invasion, it, the most urgent call, also needs to look forward to the need to build a new architecture of, of diplomacy to replace the so-called security architecture based on NATO that has been the basis in, in, uh, in Europe. And that means getting rid of this tendency for spending huge amounts of, of money in every country, starting with our own, on the military budgets. The fact that the US and Russia together control more than 90% of the nuclear weapons in the world makes the stakes in this particular war even more dramatically dangerous than in earlier wars. It's kind of ironic because I have a degree in peace building from Notre Dame, and uh, I am I am this like peace, uh, no military and all of that, and peace education sort of advocate. And I, a couple of years ago, I wrote an article saying how much we have to create uh, security through education and not through military budget. And basically, I made an argument to relocate more money from military to um, to educational system. And now, uh, I mean, when, when we are attacked by real missiles and, uh, and tanks and everything, I completely changed the perspective. And I think that um, as good as diplomacy is, it failed to prevent this war. So now we need military assistance. And I cannot believe I'm saying this, but actually we need real weapons to fight the, the weapons that we attacked with and to protect the people. So uh, it's really important that uh, on top of all the diplomacy level uh, uh, efforts that, that, uh, that countries like the U.S. and others will provide us with necessary military assistance, because if the war doesn't stop on the Ukrainian territory, it will move further into Europe and probably even further. Is it an either or? I mean, is it, can't we do both? Well, I, I really understand what what Anastasia is saying, and it's a huge challenge for how to answer this. It's certainly true that so far diplomacy has failed. There is diplomacy underway. There have been some talks that seem to have made a certain level of, of progress, but not enough. And so far we're hearing that Putin is still refusing to participate in, in diplomatic engagement uh, at the highest level, which ultimately will be needed. And it's also true, it's not but, but it's and also true, is that if we look back just a little bit further, we see that the security architecture across Europe 
the rise of NATO, the payment of billions and billions and billions of dollars and thousands of weapons and new weapon systems over and over again across the continent, mainly funded through the US and the wealthiest countries in, in Europe, that has failed. It failed to prevent the, uh, the invasion. It, it didn't work. So there's an urgency right now. And we know that greater militarization creates more problems after. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. All of my guests this time have been working for peace and justice for years. From Washington, Phyllis Bennis directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. She's also the author of several books, including Challenging Empire, How People, Governments, and the UN Defy U.S. Power. From Russia, we're joined by Dmitry Makarov, a member of the Moscow Helsinki Group, one of the oldest active human rights groups in the so-called post-Soviet era. And from Berlin, after having had to leave her home in Ukraine, Anastasia Liuchina, a professor at the Kiev School of Economics, where she directs the Horizontal Connections NGO. She's also an expert in conflict resolution with a master's degree in international peace studies from Notre Dame. To see our guests in action, you can watch our show on YouTube. And don't forget to hit the bell to subscribe to our channel. You can also find The Laura Flanders Show on close to 300 public television stations every week. Go to lauraflanders.org for all the information. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter to receive information on all of our streaming events and web exclusives, like the full uncut version of today's show. Next, Dmitry Makarov weighs in on my question of whether it's an either-or situation when it comes to sending weapons and participating in diplomacy. Can't we do both? But first, here's Imagine, performed by João Pacheco, a multi-instrumentalist artist based in Portugal. Dimitri, do you want to jump in on this? And Anastasia will definitely come back to you. I mean, there is the urgency of a now. And I understand the dilemma. And some of my fellow friends and colleagues from the anti-war movement or from human rights movement are taking up arms now. And who I am to judge them. I, I'm not in a place to, to judge them or to condemn them. And, and, and it's a tragedy that they are faced with this situation. And there are concrete people who ordered this war who are to blame. But there is also a shared responsibility, a shared responsibility that we have somehow limited the, our notion of security to hardline military security. Although, I mean, as a part of the Helsinki movement, that was, in a way, a civil society attempt to shape the way security is treated. You know, in the Helsinki Accords, Moscow-Helsinki group arguing that it's not that the third basket of security, the human dimension of it, 
that includes human rights, rule of law, is just as important as economic stability and as hardline security. And that has been entirely forgotten. The world missed an opportunity to stand up for those principles after the invasion of Crimea. I mean, talk about the violation of Helsinki. I just remembered, uh, I was sitting uh, in 2014 when the annexation happened. I was in Crimea. I was there on a place. I watched it with my own eyes. And I was dumbstruck by the reaction of of a society that didn't understand it as a crisis of of the legal norms. That the Budapest Memorandum went to hell, that the entire post-war agreements architecture went to hell. It wasn't taken seriously enough. Just quickly, I was going to say that one of the aspects of that, which civil society is equally responsible as governments for allowing to happen, has been the the sidelining, the complete sidelining of organizations like the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which redefined or at least began the process of redefining security, as Dimitri has, has referenced, away from a solely military reality to a much broader understanding of what continental security across Europe means, the notion of allowing organizations like the OSCE greater empowerment rather than being sidelined, even stripping away their human rights monitors from Ukraine, which happened early on in this crisis. Uh, And this has happened before. This happened in, in the 90s in the Balkan crises as well. So I think there are models we can look at to see how even on the, on the immediate level, this, this process of diplomacy can be moved forward. I think we're, we're looking at a situation where there's going to be a diplomatic solution. The question is, how many more people must die before it gets put in, in place? We are just losing people every day. Eight people died in a shopping center in the middle of Kiev. I mean, we lost 115 children uh, due to bombings and shootings. I mean, families were shot on their way out of hot zones. And um, like, what kind of diplomatic solutions can be there under these circumstances? It can happen afterwards, but now we need a, like purely military assistance and not just weapons, but also help with managing and, and leading and, and making strategic decision on warfare. But you don't share our concern that we feel here that the, no, the implementation of a no-fly zone could very quickly bring the U.S. into direct military conflict with Russia? The U.S. is kind of already involved in a direct conflict with Russia. So we just have to admit it. And and again, we in Ukraine, we have a, it's a joke about being deeply concerned. And you are using this word again. I mean, the, being concerned is not enough in these circumstances. You really need to fight with us against this because this evil force and it's the force of, uh, of authoritarianism is going to come into your door. We're looking at a, a Europe united as it hasn't been in decades, the exact opposite of what um, Putin presumably wanted, more NATO expansion, more militarization, more weapons, maybe not enough, but more weapons being transferred to the region. What happens to progressive movements broadly defined? And I am reminded, you know, after the financial crash, the crisis of 2008 and before, we did see an Arab Spring, a push for democracy, differently successful in different places. But is there any chance um, of progressive forces emerging stronger from this or only weaker? 
our focus, I think, needs to be on building a movement demanding diplomacy and looking forward at the same time as we deal with the urgency of now people that are dying today. But very quickly, diplomacy by whom and for what? I'm still looking for what Dimitri mentioned, which was any taste of civil society at those tables. There has not, well, there won't be civil society presence at the table until we have a civil society that is more of a presence in demanding that the negotiations happen, that diplomacy be real, not just a slogan. We can't simply assert the slogan. We need real mobilization. And here, at least, that's been very hard to come by. Anastasia. Diplomacy. Well, I I want to say a bit more about civil society on the ground in Ukraine, because I think it has been, um, there is a major breakthrough. Uh, There was one in in 2014, and whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Uh, The civil society as strong as ever in Ukraine. Um, And uh, it basically, uh, people from civil society learn how to organize themselves. And we are doing everything from procurement of military equipment to protective gear, to medical supplies, to evacuation, uh, to, I mean, it's unbelievable. Even with donor blood supplies, it was fascinating that before people fled Kiev, they left so much donor blood in the bank that has never happened before in our entire history. So um, in that sense, I think, uh, I mean, it's the whole country is fighting and it's not just the military forces, but also the civic resistance that allows us to at least uh, stop uh, the, the military uh, intervention. And and I think we should also uh, give credit to these organizations and on top of military assistance, um, it, it, it would be great to provide support to to non-governmental organizations and actors that are active on the ground. I know there is a big push to to give money to international organizations because they are like the usual suspects. But what we see is that local organizations have become very strong and very effective in providing assistance on the ground. So I would suggest that um, if people choose who to support, there are a number of credible local organizations that do all sorts of assistance, and it will be great to provide help and support to uh, to local organizations. Thank you, Anastasia. We'll put some information at our website. Dimitri, for you, um, many people have their hopes pinned on some kind of internal opposition inside Russia, including inside the military. Are those um, hopes realistic? Well, I mean, let me just say that let's not hope, let's not put our hopes on that. Uh, because also the military was involved in war crimes already. How does it, it's already smeared in blood. How can it be accepted as a party in any type of negotiation? One of the most interesting processes in Russia at the moment is how people challenge the authority in their family, where they argue about the war, uh, to their parents who are much more receptive to government propaganda, how they argue, for example, in the universities, where the rectors of universities speak in favor of the war, uh, representing the entire student body, and the students rebel against that. How there are feminist organizations speaking out about how this, the, the whole patriarchal thinking is very much implicated in this war. I mean, there are all sorts of dialogues that are going on that may not be as relevant as military or humanitarian assistance, but are important in keep people's lives. My government, the government I pay taxes to, the government that claims to operate in my name, 
has been responsible for so much suffering around the world from its origins right through to today. And for us to figure out how to take that into account while building the kind of global movement, a people's movement around the world to learn the lessons that we're seeing here. Once again, we're seeing that the issues of racism and hypocrisy and xenophobia are not only challenges for us in the United States, they are global challenges that we have to face globally. The challenge of authoritarianism, we saw it with Trump, we're seeing it around the world in so many countries, leads to the horrors of these kinds of wars. And if we don't build a global movement, we will see it again in other places. So we need to simultaneously deal with the urgency of now, which I think means focusing everything on how do we get diplomacy to work, not just as a slogan, but as a reality that can actually stop the killing. And at the same time, look at the lessons that we're seeing from this particular war and make sure that we use them in building the kind of movement around the world that can prevent it from ever happening again. We're out of time. This has been an extraordinary conversation, the like of which I'm not seeing anywhere. And I appreciate you all for being part of it. Um, Anastasia, closing thoughts. And my are, I'm sure, best to all of the people close to your heart and to your people right now. Um, I just want to say what you can do to help us. Uh, and one is to share more news and truthful information about what is happening in, in Ukraine and uh, to provide support to people on the ground, both military and civilians. Uh, second, please create public pressure on your government officials and your politicians and also your companies to leave Russia and to to have uh, strict sanctions and increase them and increase the pressure at all levels. and. Uh, um, find diplomatic and military solutions, but also just leave Russia. And um, I know it's a painful decision, but you still have companies that continue to work in Russia, despite the fact that most of the reputable businesses have left, um, uh, because this pressure will help uh, stop the war. Um, and yes, and I, I also want to thank thank everybody and thank different countries and people who have been so responsive and so helpful and so supportive for our effort. Uh, thank you with all my heart. Scholars of authoritarianism say that it begins with the limiting of options, a lopping off of a whole set of realities and choices, and the vilifying of those who speak out. Dissenters say that what makes a difference is practice. And today's conversation felt to me like practice. Practice in believing that there are more than just one or two options. Practice in holding two things together at the same time, that we need to stop a war and work across national boundaries to prevent the next one. I believe we can both work for peace in Ukraine and be concerned about what's happening in the Horn of Africa and Afghanistan and right here in the U.S. We can live in a world of both and and many choices and realities, but we need practice, places of connection, places of breath.
For more information on this week's guests, along with a suggested reading list and notes on related episodes to explore in our archives, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. And don't forget that as a Patreon partner of this program, you get early access to all of our entire full uncut conversations, as well as more invitations to extra events, streaming exclusives, and special things. Our Patreon partners are especially loved, as you can see, because they, you, support this free podcast with a contribution of whatever size every month, which enables us to keep all of our programming free on TV, radio, and right here. We have so much in store for you as we kick off our new 2022 season on public television and radio, and so we have a special thanks to give to our Patreon partners. Thank you. Your support is the backbone of our operation. So, if you're not a Patreon partner yet, how about it? You don't have to give a lot every month, just something. And don't we believe in all of us doing our bit? If you want to give a one-time donation, that is fantastic too. You can get all the information at lauraflanders.org. Thank you, thank you. Stay kind, stay curious. Till the next time, I'm Laura. <laughs>